Let's turn in our Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to begin in chapter 1, pick it up at verse 18. One of the more difficult things in teaching through the Bible is knowing at what pace to go. Should you go slow and carefully explain and speak about each verse and each phrase? Or should you go a little bit quicker? There's advantages to each. If you go a little bit more quickly through a book of the Bible, you sort of get the general theme of the book a little more in tune. Uh, If you go slowly, you can pick up words and phrases and emphasize them more. Uh, I don't know. We're going through Corinthians already more slowly than I thought. We're just going to make it through the end of chapter 1 today. Uh, And I don't know. I usually figured we'd like to get a chapter 2 in a night, but I'm not going to rush this. Because this passage of Scripture that we have in front of us this evening is uh, extremely powerful and relevant to where the church is at today. Now, Paul has been speaking to the Corinthians after introducing himself, after praising the Corinthians uh, for all the good things going on with them. He challenged them on the divisions that they were experiencing. Uh, They had divided themselves up into different uh, cliques or camps into the Corinthian church. And so you had the camp that said, well, we're of Paul. And you had the camp over here that said, well, we're of Apollos. And you had the camp over there saying, well, we're of uh, Peter. And you had the other camp, well, we're more spiritual than you all. We're of Jesus. And Paul says, listen, when I came to you guys, I only baptized a few of you. I'm glad that I didn't baptize more because it would have just become more uh, uh, centered on me. And then he concludes with verse 17. Let's take a look at that, just sort of a launching pad to consider verse 18. Paul writes and he says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. In other words, Paul has just declared the idea that the cross of Christ could be made of no effect if it were presented with the wisdom of words. If it's presented in in, uh, clever language or in uh, tricky figures of speech or a a heart that desires more to entertain than to preach the straightforward gospel, this can make the gospel of no effect. Paul now, in the following verses, beginning at verse 18, is going to show us why this is the case. Why this is true of the cross and the message of the gospel, that it will be made of no effect if it is presented with the wisdom or trust in the wisdom of words or cleverness of speaking. Now we pick it up at verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Friends, I'm just going to read that again. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Friends, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. To those who reject the salvation of the cross of Jesus Christ, the idea of being saved through the work of a crucified man is foolish. Now, when I stand before you at the end part of the 20th century, just a a few years before the new millennium, and I say words like this, especially if I give the right kind of religious intonation in my voice, the message of the cross. It sounds kind of noble, doesn't it? It sounds kind of spiritual, kind of, you know, wow, that's important. Wow, this is religious sounding. But my friends, I want you to consider what that phrase, the message of the cross, meant in the first century. 
in the first century, saying message of the cross was about the same as saying message of the electric chair. Let me read it to you again. For the message of the electric chair is foolishness to those who are... Well, of course it's foolishness. Friends, today we have crosses of all different kinds. We wear them around our necks. We wear them as earrings. We wear them as jewelry. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. It's good to have a remembrance of the cross. But we can never, ever forget that in our modern culture, we've sanitized the cross. And when you said that word cross or crucified to someone from Paul's culture, they thought of the cross as one thing. As being one of the most horrific, terrible torture instruments and execution instruments that's ever been devised by man. And what possible message could a cruel, humiliating, unrelenting instrument of death have? No wonder it is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Friends, I just hope that tonight you can regain uh, a, 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 an appreciation, maybe clear away some of the religious fog or cobwebs that have been in your mind that make you just look at these things and realize, oh, isn't that nice? That's very religious sounding. But my friends, the message of the cross is a strange message that we can be saved because a man died an agonizing, humiliating, tortured death But my friends, even though it is a strange message, even though it is regarded as foolish by the perishing, to those who trust in it, to those who are being saved, this message of the cross, look at it in verse 18, it's unbelievable. He says, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now friends, he's not saying that the message of the cross tells about the power of God or brings the power of God or teaches us about the power of God. He says that the message of the cross is the power of God. There is inherent power in the preaching of the true gospel when it is received with faith. The hearing and the trusting of the true gospel will bring the power of God into your life. I want you to notice something else. I present before you this evening that the terms gospel and message of the cross are synonymous. They mean the same thing. You won't see the word gospel in verse 18, but you'll see it in verse 17. Look in verse 17. He says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And then in verse 18, he's describing more about the gospel. For the apostle Paul, the message of the cross was the apostle, excuse me, was the gospel. It was impossible for the apostle to preach the gospel without presenting the message of the cross. My friends, preaching a high moral standard is not preaching the gospel. Preaching the universal fatherhood of God is not preaching the gospel. Preaching the universal brotherhood of man is not preaching the gospel. The gospel is the message of the cross. I want you to notice something else in this verse. It's the verb tenses. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. My friends, it didn't say will perish. They are perishing. They're in the process of perishing right now. They are on that slippery slope that will end them in eternal separation from God. But they're already on that path. They're already on that track. 
And then it says, but to us who are being saved, not will be saved, or being saved. Now, we could do a fascinating study this evening. It really is a remarkable thing to study. The three different verb tenses of our salvation. Sometimes in the New Testament, it says that you have been saved. Other times in the New Testament, it says that you are being saved. And then other times in the New Testament, it says you will be saved. Which is it? Yes. Well, it's all three, isn't it? There's a sense in which we have been saved. There's a sense in which we're being saved. And there's a sense in which we will be saved. But friends, each one of us here tonight is definitely moving in one of these two directions. Either you're perishing or you're being saved. Really, all of humanity can be put in one of these two boxes. And isn't that a frightening thought? So many of ourselves or our friends or our loved ones, we, we want to think they're somehow in the bubble. They're somehow in an in-between place. They're not really perishing. Well, we know they're not really being saved either, but they're not. Re- no, my friends, it's one or the other. You're either on your way to perishing or you're on your way to your ultimate salvation. Now, Paul is going to go on and explain more along these lines, beginning with verse 19. He says, for it is written. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Now, in this quotation from Isaiah 29, 14, Paul shows that in spiritual matters, God opposes the wisdom of man. God will destroy the wisdom of the wise. He's not going to bow down before it. My friends, God doesn't sit around respecting the wisdom of the wise. Now, when I say the wisdom of the wise, I'm not talking about things of academic intelligence. You know, when a scientist or a mathematician uh, figures out a complex mathematical problem and writes it out on the blackboard and figures it out and gets everything right and makes it all work, you know what? I think that pleases God. Because you're dealing with things of objective truth, and, and God is happy that that scientist came to the right answer and that it was true. He's not talking about things like you can measure with mathematics or this, that. What Paul's talking about here is human philosophy, human ways of thinking along those lines. My friends, God will destroy the wisdom of the wise of this world. He will not bow down before that wisdom. So Paul goes on to say in verse 20, Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. I love it how Paul begins verse 20. Where is the wise? Paul's saying, listen, in light of what God says in Isaiah 29, 14, now where's your wise man? Come on before me, Mr. Wise Man. Let's measure your wisdom against God's. Where's your scribe? The scribe would be like the academic man of the day. And then he says, where's the disputer of this age? The the disputer of this age, that's a term to describe someone who wants to dispute every issue and solve it by human reason. And Paul says, bring all these people before God. Now, how do you measure up? Where are you? God's made you all foolish through his wisdom. He's destroyed the wisdom of the wise just as he said he would. And why? Why has God destroyed the wisdom of the wise? Did you see that in verse 21? This is staggering, friends. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. My friends, there is a constant tendency 
to think that the smartest and the wisest humans will know the most about God. But God cannot be found through human wisdom, but only through what? Through the message of the cross. The pursuit of human wisdom may bring earthly contentment. It may bring earthly happiness, though that may be rare. I mean, I don't know many philosophy majors that I think are really happy people. My friends, this pursuit of of human wisdom, it and in itself itself, it can never bring the true knowledge of the true God. I want you to pause and just consider for a minute here tonight that often the most educated people have the least regard for God. Now, why is that? It's not always the case. I mean, some of the most brilliant men of history have been Christians. Think of a man like Isaac Newton. You know, there may never been a more brilliant scientist ever to walk this earth than Isaac Newton. And that man was a totally right-on committed Christian. He spent his time writing Bible commentaries, Isaac Newton. That's what kind of scholar he was. But for the most part, educated people are more likely to reject God. Why? Because I think largely the smarter one sees themselves as being, the less regard they have for God. Human wisdom is constantly rejecting God and opposing him. And so it's ultimately showing itself to be foolish and perishing in doing so. There's the great scholar before God on the judgment day. He's in his graduation robes, right? He's got that big black gown and the funny hat, and he's got all these marks on the sleeves to show how distinguished he is. And he brings all his diplomas to show God. And God addresses him, and you know, he says, uh, you know, uh, Mr. Jones, you're before my throne. And Jones says back, well, that's Dr. Jones, God. <laughs> Not in my court, God says. You're Mr. Jones. You see, my friends, human wisdom in and of itself can't find God. And we shouldn't expect that educated people would have any greater line to God than anybody else. You know, one day students in one of Albert Einstein's classes were asking, excuse me, were having a discussion among themselves, and he caught the tail end of it as he walked into the, the lecture hall. And what they were discussing was they were saying how they pretty much figured out that there was no God. You know, so they they figured out. So uh, he asked them, well, what are you guys discussing? And they said, well, Dr. Einstein, we figured out that there is no God. And they said, wow, that's kind of interesting. You know, you guys have all decided this collectively as a class. Then he said, let me ask you a question. How much of the sum total of human knowledge do you think is represented in this classroom right now? And so they talked amongst themselves for a while, and they, they figured out, In this classroom, we have 5% of the sum total of human knowledge. And Einstein kind of whistled. He goes, I think that's pretty generous, he says. (laughs) But then he said, I'll I'll let you have that. And then he said, do you think it's possible that God exists in the 95% that you don't know? (laughs) Well, of course it is. You see, my friends, the, the education or, or, or intellect can get in a person's way of relationship to God. Now, please don't get the idea that God is against education, that God is against intellectual excellence. But, my friends, don't think that that is going to be your bridge to God. 
Did you see this in verse 20? Excuse me, in verse 21. He says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. In other words, Paul says, I know the message of the cross is foolish, and that's how God wants it. It's a foolish message, according to the wisdom of the world. Now, it seems that in the Corinthian church, there was a group of people who wanted to believe that the gospel itself was a sublime form of human wisdom, as the Greeks considered wisdom. I don't know if you've ever encountered some of these uh, cults or religious groups in our own day and age, where they kind of come at you with this, with this attitude, you know, we will offer you secret truths and secret understandings that nobody has ever fathomed before until us, or the ancient mysteries that we've now received. And there are religious groups like that out there today. But you should know that in the world Paul lived in, these groups were extremely popular. And basically, these guys were approaching the gospel as if it was just another one of these secret truths. One another of these you know, great little things that you could get into and adopt as a way of thinking or as a, a, uh, a Greek kind of wisdom. You know what Paul says to this kind of thinking? He says, how foolish can you get? He says, what is there wise about a crucified Messiah? Now, please notice, friends, when he says in verse 21, where he talks about the foolishness of the message, and later on in verse 25, where he talks about the foolishness of God, it does not mean that Paul actually considered the message and God to be foolish. He's describing them as they appear to the perishing man. To the perishing man, the message of the cross is foolishness. To the perishing man, God and his plan are foolish. But my friends, what Paul is trying to show us is that God's wisdom is not man's wisdom multiplied to the highest degree. You know, sometimes people think that. They think that God is just the smartest man ever to live. You know, the, 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 you know as smart as a man can be, well, God is, is even smarter than that. And that's how intelligent he is. That's, that's how wise he is. My friends, we need to understand that God's wisdom, that God's intelligence is of a completely different order than man's. It's not even the same ballpark. My friends, we're not talking about, you know, uh, when, when my kids go out and play a farm league, uh, little league, you know, and they're throwing the ball and, and half the pitchers can't even make it to home plate and the ball's bouncing there. And saying, well, you know, they're playing the same game they play in Dodger Stadium. They're just playing it little time. So some people think, well, you know, our intellect, our wisdom is like t-ball, and God's wisdom is like Dodger Stadium. No, my friends, it's out of the universe. It's not even measurable on the same scale. Listen to what God says in Isaiah 55. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. My friends, please understand that Paul is not condemning all learning or all education here. He is merely saying that in and of themselves, these things are useless for obtaining spiritual wisdom. But you know what words I almost like the best in verse 21? Look at it again. It says, it 
pleased God to do it this way. Doesn't that blow your mind? God takes pleasure in accomplishing our salvation in a way that no one else would have expected. God is happy to save us in a way that is offensive to human wisdom. He's happy to do it. It pleases him. You know, when God sees the person get all angry at his plan, or, you know, that's foolish that I could be saved through a crucified Jew hanging on a cross. Really now? I think God's pleased. Yeah, that's, that's how I wanted it to be, God says. I wanted it to be offensive to human wisdom. So that nobody would think that, that salvation is the attainment of human wisdom. Rather, it's the work of the power of God. Going on now to verse 22. For the Jews request a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul begins by saying, for the Jews request a sign. Now, friends, in Paul's day, the Jewish world was looking for a sign. And you know what sign they wanted? They wanted a miraculous messianic deliverer. They wanted the Messiah to come down and to call down fire on all the Roman legions and to lead Israel into preeminent place among all the nations of the world. They were not looking for the message of the cross. Here's your Messiah, Israel. Hang you on a cross. So what are you talking about? They say, that's not my Messiah. My Messiah is the one who, who whoops on the Romans. My Messiah is a political and military deliverer. Now, friends, their desire for deliverance was not bad. But their rejection of God's way of deliverance was. See, my friends, and then he goes on to talk about the Greeks. Did you see that in verse 22? It says, the Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. The Greek culture valued the pursuit of wisdom, usually expressed in high academic philosophical terms. The Greeks were not big on manual labor. They thought it was beneath the dignified of any really civilized man to do manual labor. So what they did was they had slaves do it all for them. For the Greeks, they sat around chatting about things, chatting about philosophy, learning, you know, always gaining knowledge, always learning, as Roman says, but never coming to a knowledge of the truth. And so their pursuit of philosophy or wisdom, uh, they led them to seek these high academic philosophical things, but they did not value the wisdom expressed in the message of the cross. Now friends, is it wrong to desire wisdom? No, that's not wrong to desire wisdom. But to reject God's wisdom is wrong. And so what does Paul say in response to them? The Jews want a sign. The Greeks seek after wisdom. Check it out, verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified. You know, there's an approach to ministry and doing church and preaching the gospel today that says how you need to approach people is you need to find out what they want and then you give it to them and sneak the gospel in there somewhere. 
So I could see the Apostle Paul. The Jews seek a sign. So here's the first church of signs. Come on in. We're ministering to the Jewish population that wants a sign. And then the Greeks want wisdom. So uh, the have another service. First service for the Jews who want a sign. Second service at Paul's church is for the Greeks who are seeking after wisdom. And he carefully tailors the message and the service to appeal to each group. And he talks glowingly of Jesus all the time. My friends, is that what the Apostle Paul would do? Not on your life. He knows what they're seeking but he will give them the truth. Verse 23 says, but we preach Christ crucified. You see, instead of giving the Jews and Greeks what they demanded in deliverance and wisdom, God gives them something unexpected, a crucified Messiah. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. Do you know what an oxymoron is? You know, like jumbo shrimp. Uh, a joking one. I don't mean to insult anybody here who's in the military, but they say military intelligence. You know, things like that are supposed to be humorous things or oxymorons. Two words that don't go together. My friends, let me tell you, the ultimate oxymoron is Christ crucified. Do you know what the word Christ means? What the title Christ means? It means Messiah. Messiah. Triumph, power, glory, sent from heaven above the second person of the Trinity, in all power and majesty, you're talking about the Messiah. Messiah crucified. Friends, let me just tell you that if the cross does not seem strange to you, then either you don't understand what the cross was all about, or you don't understand who Jesus is. You don't understand the tension between Christ and crucified. And I bet in Paul's original leaders when he said, but we preach Christ crucified, some were tearing out their hairs. What are you talking about? My friends, the great Roman statesman Cicero said, the cross, it speaks of that which is so shameful, so horrible, it should never even be mentioned in polite society. He said, you shouldn't even talk about the cross when you're in polite society. It's just too horrible. It's too, it'd be talking about people being mutilated and maimed and, and be like bringing up a car wreck at a dinner party. And let me put it to you this way, friends. Let's say we were in Jerusalem on that day that Jesus was being tried. When Pilate brought Jesus out before the crowd. And let's say we knew a little something of this man or certainly looked at him. We, we admired the dignity and the grace at which he carried himself with. And, and we knew there was something different about this man, even if we didn't believe on him as the Messiah. And all of a sudden, we heard the crowd chanting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. My friends, at that moment, if we would have had our wits about us, we would have shouted back, listen, don't crucify this man. If you have to execute him, execute him honorably. Right? Behead him. Hang him. Stone him. Anything's better than crucifying him. Let him die the death of a dignified man, but don't expose him to the horror and the humiliation of hanging on a cross. But my friends, God wanted Christ crucified, and if we don't embrace the cross, even with all of its strange contradictions, then we are lost.
My friends, I wish that every pulpit in every church would be able to rightly proclaim those words of Paul, we preach Christ crucified. There was a strong church that once when they were making their building, and this was the days when they were very strong and active, and and they really did preach Christ crucified. They wanted that for their motto. And so on an archway leading into the churchyard, they inscribed the words, they carved it in wood over an archway. It said, we preach Christ crucified. But as the years went on, the church lost its fervor, and, and it began to decline spiritually, and the message from the pulpit changed to accommodate what the people wanted. And curiously, ivy grew up around that archway and it started erasing the words. You couldn't read them anymore. It covered them up. So where it once read, we preach Christ crucified, pretty soon it just said, we preach Christ. And that's what they did. They preached Christ. Christ, the great moral teacher. Christ, the great moral example. You know, we all need to be like Jesus and and let's just try to love our neighbor. But they stopped preaching Christ crucified as an atonement for guilty sinners. Well, the ivy continued to grow and the spiritual decline of the church continued. Well, pretty soon it just said, we we preach. And that's all they did. They forgot all about Christ and they just preached. They just preached sermons. Sermons on world peace and brotherly love and feed the poor and all those other good, fine things. But they weren't even preaching Christ anymore. And then finally, when the church's spiritual decline had come full circle or fully extended and, and the ivy had fully grown, it just read out front, we And that's all the church was anymore. It was a social club where people gathered. My friends, that's that's the story in all too many churches. And if there's any essential thing for the church today, it's to reclaim and simply focus on we preach Christ crucified. Now he goes on and he says here, verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. The Jews regarded Christ crucified as a stumbling block. Now perhaps the word stumbling block there could be better understood or translated as an offense or a scandal. So they were scandalized or offended by the cross. The Jews, the Greeks looked at the cross and what did they say? Verse 23, it says to the Greeks it's foolishness. But you know what? I got news for you, folks. God did not respond to the polling data. God didn't say, oh, my heavens. Look, this isn't playing well at all. Maybe we got to come up with another plan. Maybe I need to rephrase this. God kept to his gospel because for those who believed it, Jews or Greeks, Christ crucified was, did you see it there in verse 24? But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. My friends, the cross and its message may seem weak, but they're not weak. They are powerful and wise. But our expectations of what God should do. You shouldn't have done salvation this way, Lord. You shouldn't have worked in my life this way. It's our expectations that keep us from receiving God's power and wisdom. You know, I think Paul knew this by experience. I think that before Paul was a Christian, before that experience on the Damascus Road, I imagine that Paul was scandalized by the cross, that he was offended by the preaching of the gospel. He went around hearing people preach that the Messiah had been crucified. And that got under his skin. How dare they? How dare they take 
this person who's to come, who's the hopes and dreams of all of Israel throughout all generations. And how dare they say that this Messiah has been crucified? What an abomination. I'm not going to have that. And Paul energetically tried to persecute Christians and killed many of them before being confronted by Jesus on the road to Damascus. Paul knew this personally. And in the Greek and Roman world, it was just the same. The Greeks thought that a message of salvation through a humiliating instrument of death like the cross, they thought that was foolish. You know, in Rome, there's a well-known piece of ancient graffiti which shows a worshiper standing next to a crucified figure. It's a man worshiping in a little drawing here, a graffiti on a wall. He's there, and there's a crucified figure in front of him. And the crucified figure, there's a body on a cross, but the head is of a donkey, of an ass. And you know what it says in the writing? It says, Alexemnos worships his God. This is how foolish his God is. His God is an ass, basically is what it's saying. Friends, this is how foolish the Greeks saw the cross to be. And I just wonder today, folks, I wonder about those who insist that we must change the emphasis of the gospel because people can't relate to it today. My friends, can I just tell you straight out, they couldn't relate to it in Paul's day either. To the Greeks, it was a scandal, and to the, excuse me, to the Jews, it was a scandal, and to the Greeks, it was foolishness. But Paul preached the cross, and the power of the message of the cross came through. All right, time for a couple quotes by Spurgeon. Those who thus veil an unwelcome truth imagine that they make disciples, whereas they are only paying homage to unbelief and comforting men in their rejection of divine propitiation for sin. Whatever the preacher may mean in his heart, he will be guilty of the blood of souls if he does not clearly proclaim Christ and him crucified. Then he goes on to say, certain divines tell us that they must adapt the truth to the progress of the age, which means they must first murder it and fling its dead body to the dogs, which simply means that a popular lie shall take the place of an offensive truth. My friends, we need to stick with the truth of the gospel because it's the truth. And it doesn't matter if it's not playing well in the polling data. It doesn't matter if nobody's responding to it. No, I know people are responding to it. Look at all you here tonight. You here tonight, you're not home watching television. You're not home doing something else. You're here to listen to the message of the cross, to the, the words in the Bible, the message of the gospel. But friends, even if there was one person here, or no person here, even if I was preaching it to an empty auditorium, I should still preach it. Because it's true. I love how Paul concludes here in verse 25. He says, Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. God was at his most, and I'm putting this in quotation marks, God was at his most foolish and God was at his very weakest at the cross. (laughs) How much more foolish could it be to have God on a cross? How much more weak can you be than to be on a cross? My friends, It was infinitely wiser and infinitely stronger than anything man could do. Let's continue on now, verse 26. He says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, 
But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Now, I love this. You know, Paul's talking about the foolish wisdom of God, right? Not that it actually is foolish, but to human intellect it seems foolish. And he says, I've given you a perfect example of the foolish wisdom of God. The message of the cross. And then now it's like he's saying, do you want another example of the foolishness of God? He chose you. That's another example of it. You see, my friends, Paul is saying to the Corinthians, look at yourselves. You're no great bargain. There's not many wise among you, not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. (laughs) You guys are no pack of the rich and famous, the high and mighty. You're not the movers and shakers. He says, no, but you're you're called. And God has brought you. By the way, did you notice there in verse 26, it says, God has not called many mighty, not many noble. He didn't say he hasn't called any. He said not many many. And I say that because there was a, a lady, an aristocratic lady in England named Lady Huntington. She was a rich and influential friend of George Whitfield and John Wesley. And she used to like to say, and because she was an aristocrat, she was noble, she was mighty, she was wise. She used to say, I'm going to heaven by an M. Because it says not many instead of not any. Because if it was not any, she wouldn't be able to go. But it was not many, and so she's going to heaven by an M. But instead of calling many of those, look what God is calling instead, verse 27. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. Looking again at the Corinthians, Paul says, listen, you aren't wise according to the world. You aren't mighty. You aren't noble. But you're foolish according to the world. Now, I just want to pause and say again, I think Paul's saying this because one of the big impressions you get of the Corinthian church as you go through this letter is you get the feeling that they kind of had a big head. Now, Paul's just looking, any little excuse he can to kind of punch a little hole in that big airbag that's sitting between their shoulders. And I think that no doubt many of the Corinthian Christians were beginning to think of themselves in high terms because of God's work in them. Well, you know, God's really doing a work in me, brother. You know, I'm I'm really something. Wow, you know, boy, isn't this great. Paul's not going to let that happen. Paul's letting them know, you know why you were chosen? It wasn't because you were so great. It's because God is so great. And why did God do it? Notice it, to put to shame the wise. That's in verse 27. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. Now this explains part of the pleasure of God that we discussed previously. God loves to rebuke the idolatry of human wisdom. And he often does it by choosing and by using the foolish things of the world. Now please understand, my friends. God is not saying that it's better to be foolish or uneducated. Well, if I want God to use me, I guess I should be as dumb as I can be. (laughs) Then it'll bring more glory to him. No, my friends. What he's saying is that the world's wisdom and education does not bring a salvation in Jesus Christ. So God's pattern has always been to reach out to the weak and to the ignorant first, but not exclusively. Let me tell you, how did it come when Jesus was born? Who first came to Jesus, the shepherds or the wise men? Well, the shepherds came first, didn't they? 
and then the wise men? Or how about uh, uh, among the apostles? Who came first, the ignorant fisherman or the highly trained rabbi scholar, Paul? You see, you'll find that pattern so often in God's work. The, the weak and the ignorant come first, and then God says, well, then I'll let you smart guys come along. And that's often how God does it. Friends, the ancient Christians were for the most part slaves and men of low station. And you know what? As they spread the gospel throughout the Roman Empire, there one day came the day until the Roman emperor himself put down his crown before the cross. A bunch of slaves conquered the Roman Empire through the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the end result is plain. Did you see here in verse 29? That no flesh should glory in his presence. No one is going to stand before God in eternity and declare, you know, I figured it out, God. I figured it out. Yeah, right on. I, just like you, you did it just like I thought you should, God. <laughs> Friends, God's ways are greater and higher, and nothing of the flesh is going to glory in his presence. Let's wrap it up here with verses 30 and 31. Oh, this is exciting stuff. He says, but of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Friends, Jesus became for us wisdom. Jesus perfectly shows us in his teaching and in his life, God's wisdom. And this wisdom is oftentimes in contradiction to man's expectation. My friends, true wisdom doesn't have to do with getting smart. True wisdom, God's wisdom, is received in and through the person of Jesus. And I want you to notice this. Jesus is not only wisdom for us, and I love this. Ah, you know, how different from other, like, mystical religions. It does not say, and Jesus the Christ is the pathway to divine wisdom. No, my friends, he's not the pathway. He is wisdom. And he becomes to you wisdom. But not only that, he's not only wisdom for us, he's also, look at it in verse 30, he's also righteousness and sanctification and redemption. In his work, Jesus Christ communicates these three things to those who are in Christ Jesus. It was the first one, righteousness. Righteousness means that we're legally declared not only not guilty, but have a positive righteousness. Now, if you were uh, on God's court, you know, and there you are, and all of a sudden, the video of all your life's sins is being shown in, in heaven. My friends, it's not a double feature. It's, it has a month-long run, right? And they never have to repeat the same scene twice. And after all of that, God says, I declare you not guilty because you trust my son. Would you go for that? Now, I want you to know that God does more than that. Because not guilty just says that you're neutral, right? It doesn't say you're a good person. It just says that you're not a bad person. But my friends, God just doesn't say not guilty. You know what his declaration is? He doesn't say not guilty. He says, I declare you righteous. Isn't that exciting, friends? 
Friends, God just didn't wipe away your sins. He just didn't take away your sins. He infused into you the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He is for you righteousness. We have a positive righteousness. And it means that the righteous deeds and the righteous character of Jesus are accounted to us. So do you want to be righteous? Here it is, friends. You don't become righteous by focusing on yourself. Isn't that one of the great traps in the Christian life? I need to be righteous. I need to be righteous. I need to be righteous. Oh, Lord, I need to stop sinning. I need to stop sinning. I need to stop sinning. Uh, I need to be righteous. Friends, Jesus Christ is your righteousness. You put your focus on him, and he'll be your righteousness. And you'll see that righteousness flower in your life. What about the next one? Not just righteousness. Look at there, verse 30. Sanctification also. Sanctification speaks of our behavior and how believers are to be separate from the world and separate unto God. Right? We're separated from the world and we're separated unto God. My friends, do you want to be sanctified? Do you want to be set apart to the Lord Jesus Christ? But how many of us try to do about, I need to be sanctified, I need to be sanctified. You know, I need to do it. I need to look deep within myself and find the strength to be sanctified. Friends, get the focus off of yourself, but put your focus on Jesus Christ because Jesus became for us sanctification. And what's the last one? redemption. And you know where they get this word from? Redemption is a word from the slave trade. When somebody was up on the slave trader's block and somebody came and bought that person out of their slavery, they said they have redeemed them. You see, then you're no longer a slave, right? You've been bought out of your slavery and you've been set free. The idea is that we have been purchased to a permanent freedom. Friends, do you want freedom in your life? Real freedom? This is the best kept secret in the world today. People think they find freedom by throwing off God's word and God's law and God's principles in their life. They're throwing away Jesus. That's how I need to find freedom. I need to be free to do whatever I want to do. Friends, that's the most bondage kind of freedom you'll ever have in your whole life. Let me explain it to you this way. It's an illustration I used before. Some of you can probably mark off in your Bible this fourth or fifth time you've heard this one, but it's a great illustration. Let's say you have a dog. Let's say it's one of these dogs that people bring in, right? The seeing eye dog training, whatever, you know, uh, that some folks bring to church. And, and if you have a dog and if he'll obey you all the time, you can take him anywhere. But what if that dog says, I want to be free. I want to do whatever I want to do. I want to go to the bathroom where I want to go to the bathroom. I want to bite whoever I want to bite. I want to bark whenever I want to bark. What are you going to do with that dog? You're going to keep him on a chain this long in the backyard because a menace to everybody. And there that dog, he's chained up and he's saying, I'm free, I can do whatever I want to do. (laughs) Friends, that's how people who are in disobedience to God, who are in rebellion against God are. You want real freedom? Well, friends, then obey God. And like that dog, you can go anywhere with him. And friends, redemption, oh my friends, that talks about freedom. And friends, you will never find freedom by focusing on yourself. Never. Because Jesus became for us redemption. So he finishes it up in verse 31, as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. I don't know. I I hope. You know, I don't hope it's this way, but it's probably this way. There's 
probably some people who walked in the door tonight and maybe almost unconsciously, you're feeling pretty good about your Christian life. Feeling pretty good about your righteousness, about your sanctification, about your redemption. Watch it. Let him who glories glory in the Lord because Jesus Christ became those things for you. It's not your human achievement. And it's glorious to see it worked out in your life. And I'm just there pumped up with you, just rejoicing with what God's doing in your life. But we know that that the glory, well, that goes to the Lord. And we're just happy to be used of him and and to have him do his work in our lives. Friends, I think that the passage of Scripture that we've had to consider tonight is so important, so relevant. I know it is for me as a pastor. Because we live in an age where pulpits like this pulpit are being challenged all the time to neglect or ignore the message of the true gospel. And they're being told to do it because that's not what people want to listen to. That's not what they're in tune with. My friends, if it could be said of anything, uh, of this church, of this ministry, of any of us, individually or collectively, let it be said, we preach Christ crucified. Father, um, we pray that you would ingrain that on our hearts and on our minds. Father, um, we don't want to preach Christ crucified out of some uh, sense of superiority or exalting over anybody else. But we want to do it, Lord, simply because it's, it's the power of God unto salvation. 